Welcome back to Incremental, the continuous improvement podcast. This is our practice edition for the week. I'm Devin Bedoni. And I'm Uriel Eisen. And we're going to be going over some of our improvements of the last week, as as well as proposed potential improvements and yes. ideas we want to discuss, but more on the uh, concrete nuts and bolts shop floor type of things. Yes. Um, quote... For the episode, judge me by my best ideas, not my worst. Unknown source. I really liked it because I feel like a big part of brainstorming is dumping out all your bad ideas. Mm -hmm. And then in there somewhere, there's a good one more than the other way around. And I think often, especially as you're really trying to like question everything, Mm -hmm. it's sort of hard to not delve into things that seem a little ridiculous at first glance. Yeah. Like, what if we turned our mill on its head? What would that do for (laughs) us? And it's like, if you don't, if you're not willing to entertain it, you're probably going to miss a lot of. Yeah. I sometimes have uh, frustration in uh, my home life discussing like, new ways we could try a thing and uh certain individuals just like before i even said anything there's just like a no i can like see it i can see it and i'm like i'm not saying this is how it has to be but let's talk about it like yeah i know it's a bad idea but there might be a good idea in there somewhere yeah and i think that's very much how i work is like well what if we just threw it all away and then see what happens and yeah uh, not everybody likes to do that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's good. I think uh, as long as there's, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I guess it's ideas, not actions. <laughs> <laughs> Judge me about <laughs> Yeah, that's probably a useful distinction. <laughs> For a second, I was like, oh. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I like it. Well, in prototyping, there is something to it because prototyping is about learning more than it is about execution. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you're executing to learn rather than executing to like. Sure. And I feel like building crappy, like prototypes that don't seem like they should work, there is value in that. Like everyone uh-huh. writes off an idea as a bad idea. Right. Actually building it sometimes is useful. Confirm how it does and does not work. Yeah, sometimes it's like matches. What actually does work, or (laughs) yeah, (laughs) oddly, (laughs) I was doing a project in water filtration years ago, and we were doing a lot of stuff with like welded films. Mm. And um, my brother Alicia came to visit, and we spent like a day prototyping different ways of making. Basically, making tubes from welded film is tough because the capillary action seals the two sides of the tube together if it's patterned flat so everything lays flat and so to get water to flow freely through through it is really tough and so we ended up just like prototyping all sorts of weird ideas with like extra bits inside to try to Uh keep the film apart so it didn't sort of stick together yeah uh and we did prototype a lot of ideas that were just like that probably won't work but like let's try it yeah and that was a combination of like it was cheap to try right but yeah, and we yeah, did. it can be challenging when it's not cheap to try, and there's <laughs> yeah. or there's like significant yeah. like construction hurdles involved. Totally, that definitely mucks up the works. Yes, but, but if you could build everything out of silly putty and test everything out of silly putty, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was just talking to someone who's designing an overlanding like pod that goes in the back of their truck, uh-huh. and he spent like two years in CAD. Oh wow. And I was like, have you tried building it in cardboard? And he was like, yes, I recently did it in cardboard. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was really useful. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, that's a cheap version of an expensive thing. Yeah, you just need a knife and some duct tape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just order enough Amazon Prime and <laughs> well on your way. <laughs> Why would you build an, buy another refrigerator? Oh, I needed a big box. Um, all right. <laughs> so some improvements. Yeah. Uh, I'll jump off. We we started color coding our new job work. I'm calling them a work order slip. I don't know what to call these things that I'm using on this job board to okay. organize 
Sometimes yeah. we call them a traveler. Sometimes we call them a work order slip. Sometimes they're just a job. T- I don't know. Okay. Anyway, but you know what I'm talking about. These things. Uh, so we added color coding for due date, which was helpful. And a brief update. This is a piece of paper stuck to a whiteboard. Yes. And the whiteboard has divisions on it that represent the stages in your process shop yeah. that it needs to sort of go through. Mm-hmm. Cool. So yeah. you added colors to the paper to indicate due not date? to the paper. We had we got colored magnetic clips. Oh, nice! That hold the paper. Smart. Um, and so right now we're dividing it into four weeks, basically, oh, cool. and we have a color for each week. And so basically, if a due date falls within that week, it gets that color. Or if we have room, if we think we have room early, I don't anticipate that happening much for a while yeah um and then there's a corresponding magnetic uh, just like a colored magnetic tag that we that's a dry erase tag and so we'll just dry erase the date for that color on it and it's just nice they'll kind of like travel along uh-huh. um and then you kind of like the idea is when you get to basically complete in the process, there was going to be a color tag with that due date week at the top of the board. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everything in that column should be that color. And if you see stuff that's of the next color, or you sorry, can... of that color, color or the prior, right? that's behind schedule. Um, Interesting. Has it been useful? It was useful, yeah. Um, because it was kind of like a running start. Um, I gave us... And a lot of stuff was sort of in process. I kind of like started it two weeks delayed because there was understand a, what you mean. There was a bunch of things that were like about to ship and about okay. to be done that I didn't bother putting into that gotcha. color coding system. Um, but so we're not seeing we're not seeing it like highlight delays yet, and we'll see how functional that aspect is. What was the need you saw that made you want something like this, or what was the um, having better visibility into just, yeah, where, how things, how long things have been in the shop basically. And so like if, if it's obvious that something, sometimes it's hard to tell, like the weeks just seem to blow by these days and <laughs> I know what you mean. yeah, we got an order. It seems like it wasn't that long. And then you go back and look at the order date and you're like, Oh my God, we've had this here for a while. Like I'm sure they need these. <laughs> so that's, that's part of it is, yeah. um, wanting to satisfy customers. And then also just trying to internally get a sense of what our load actually looks like um, on the different work centers. Load. So there's a question about what order things should go on. And so by seeing the due dates, that lets you make decisions without like going back and checking emails or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also just in terms of quoting new work, it's pretty easy. Yeah. So like I'm not, I haven't done like a discrete. Yeah. I'm kind of trying to take this in stages right now. I'm not saying like, okay, I have this much work like scheduled for that work center. That's a week's worth of work. I can't put anything else on that color. Okay. I'm not doing that yet. Yeah. But in theory, we should be able to start to do that and say, Oh, we're out. We're booked out four weeks or we're booked out three weeks on these work centers. This one, we're only booked out two, kind of a thing that's down the road and not something I'm trying to tackle yet. Um, but right now it's, it's also very, what the, the most useful thing so far has been seeing sort of all the work centers next to each other and then being like, Oh, in my head, I kind of put these all on this one work center for one reason or another. This other one is empty. I'm going to reshuffle and, huh. and figure out how to move things around based on, due date and so i think we'll be able to start like look like balancing the load across the work centers much more effectively to be able to hopefully uh have a more consistent flow through everything in the shop interesting yeah so i mean this is like big time visual management right which is like a huge emphasis in toyota production system where the state of things should be visible at a glance yeah I feel like every time I've taken a step in that direction in our shop, it's been like, 
wow, look at that. Uh-huh. Like, that's so easy. <laughs> and I feel like you forget about all the time spent digging back there. Like, I just did this, where we had a big order. We're changing our sort of SOP for, like, how we handle big orders, mostly just in terms of the date. Yeah. Which is, like, write the date they're due. Yeah. When you put them on the shelf. Yep. <laughs> because then it's like, Sam will be like, oh, wh- like, how many should we do this week? And I'm like, um... Let me check. Like, let me check when they want them. And yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. like all wasted time. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, no, that's super critical. So the other update we made to that was we uh, reformatted the actual printout. Okay. Um, so now we have check box check boxes for all basically all of the processes that we do in the shop. Okay. Kind of like we talked about last week with being able to, you know, fill out if there's redundance if there's redundancy because if something is a repeat job or things happen out of sequence we can notate that um we also separated out mill and lathe runtime boxes so that if it runs on one or the other or both um it's easy to to distinguish gotcha and (laughs) i don't remember if i mentioned this there was this funny thing where I was imagining half days as a unit uh-huh. of, of like time. Yeah. Because I was like, there's a lot of jobs that don't run a full day. So okay. half days are the unit. <laughs> so I put on the, uh, the first slip that I made, I put like machine run time in half days. And so I would like write out a whole number in half days. Uh-huh. And then the, uh, <laughs> and then at the top of the board, like, each category was like we want to have this many days in it and so you're having to do this oh, like funny God. half day full day <laughs> uh that's funny and uh Corum was like why can't we just use days and i was like no it's because because this the unit's a half day and he's like well why don't you just write 0.5 and i was like i'm such an idiot <laughs> <laughs> that's very funny so i converted it back to full days okay or at least language of days, right right not half days and that's it it's seems, gonna be helpful yeah <laughs> it was, that's very funny it was remarkably confusing i could see doing that also yeah being like well we're doing half days it's two half days <laughs> that's very funny yeah uh so that was good nice and i think it can be helpful yeah Having the, yeah, having the due date color coded so you can make sure things are flowing in, in sequence according to their due date is helpful. There's some, there's some questions, like things that need to be anodized, we kind of have to move through quicker because their due date has to account for that extra time. Okay. Of being out of the shop after they're done. I see. So you can't be like, oh, it's running. It's going to be delivered this week and then be like ah crap we have an extra week to add on here right so right right got to do a little thinking there but could you eliminate that by writing a due date for like machining mm. and then a due date for shipping that's separate cuz you're only trying to sort of optimize this stuff through your machining centers yeah that's a like. good call i like that and then convert back to half days no uh, um half weeks so what what waste would weeks. that be the half day to full day conversion is that just wasted human potential it's also probably is it over processing sort of over processing your information yeah yeah it's definitely waste of human potential <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah uh waiting probably as well it's like there's waiting a, for your brain or yeah. what are you <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's funny um on the on the topic of waiting yeah i've been messing with oh i don't have this written here but uh i've been messing with our sewing machine Mm. because we have a job for a company in europe that wants a bit of different sewing with more elements which Mm -hmm. they're hard to hold all in place while positioning in the sewing machine Mm -hmm. so you can, you can, there are companies where you send them a sample of what you're trying to make, you send them all the bits, and then they come up with fixturing and send it back. For sewing specifically. Yeah. And yeah. it's typically thousands of dollars. And then the sewing machines themselves are designed, Shigio would not approve. Um, <laughs> they're designed to basically like a, an industrial sewing machine does one thing and it's set up to do one thing. Yeah. And all the tooling on it is set up 
assuming that you're going to be doing that one thing for weeks at a time. And so it's all like a bunch of screws and it's very annoying to switch jobs. Yeah. Um, because like the incentives for the people designing it is basically like make the cheapest thing and then it's going to sit on the floor doing one thing. Yeah. Right. And so for a lot of small shops, that's not really the reality of owning an industrial machine. You're switching jobs because they're thousands of dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that's a big advertised feature of these machines is the sewing speed number of stitches per minute. Um, and I was thinking about it. The only reason that that is an advertised piece is because all setup is internal setup time so smed divides things into internal setup time and external setup time mm -hmm. the second you have two fixtures that flip-flop in and out of the machine just like your r450 mm -hmm. the sewing speed is like it doesn't matter basically because the loading time is longer almost always than the sewing time Right. And so if you're just sitting there loading fixture uh, while it runs, you can slow it way down because I was having an issue. I wasn't having the issue. I was anticipating oh, I you're saying like a full pallet changer, not just quick, not single minute exchange of fixtures. But no, literally just I set one up while one is running. Uh, Suddenly it's like I can slow the machine way down. And the advantage to slowing down the machine is it sews better. It wears out slower. And suddenly, so I was anticipating having a, problem of having too much inertia on the table so by wait are you clamps? actually doing this you're making a yeah, pallet yeah. changing sewing yeah not if you saw it you'd be like oh <laughs> um yes you essentially. are making pallets that you can yeah swap and they just locate on a feature that's glued to the table of the sewing machine oh that's so very cool it's very simple but effective so i guess yeah uh anyway um the inertia of those of the clamping i was anticipating potentially being an issue and then i was like wait a second if i just make two of them suddenly we can just slow the machine way down the inertia sorry i'm not as the that. sewing machine moves this fixture around the sewing machine doesn't move the uh, it jerks around the fixture to yep. get to its different stitch points sure sure and so i was like anyway so just like and then I was kind of looking at it and it's like in all these sewing factories, there's a lot of waiting happening where they're waiting for a sewing machine, like a programmable tacker to finish uh -huh. because the programmable tacker is expensive. And so everyone, so people don't buy multiple and then have one operator working two machines or something like that typically. Mm. And the cycle time is normally like seven seconds, right? right? Not like 10 minutes. So... But there's an alternative, which is changing out the clamping on it and coming up with a quick way to do that. Yeah. So right now our system is not very quick, um, but there's a bunch of ideas of how to make it quick. Um, do you have a sense of why this hasn't been tackled in industry? Is it just because I think it's, it's probably it's, not a bottleneck for those companies? I think it's a few things. I think um, there's, yeah, it's seven seconds. Mm -hmm. So it's very short. And they look very fast. Mm -hmm. And historically, they are very fast. Like switching to these programmable tackers from like... Yeah. Uh, inherently for sewing to be... Like right now, it's very hard to sew anywhere that doesn't have very cheap labor. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. Um, hard to get people to pay enough. Um, sure. And then... Because you're paying someone to stand there most of the time. <laughs> At, yeah, at I mean, I, I think partly. Uh, I think the other piece is this would add a good amount of expense. And I think, I mean, I've had this experience where like the upfront cost of these machines is substantial. Like this one was seven grand. The one I would have liked to get was 15 grand. And it just felt like mm. uh, I'm not going to spend 15 grand on a sewing machine right now. Um, also a sewing machine that does one thing. Yeah, that more one is, yeah, it, right. And like, I don't know, it has more features, but we don't need them immediately. So I would imagine if someone came out with a sewing machine that has like a quick change table, most, most production lines right now, basically someone just sets up a whole bunch of machines. Like we need a machine for each operation. They set them all up, they put people on them and then they pass garments one to the next or mm -hmm. bags or whatever it is. And so the whole method of production in sewing is done in a way that doesn't, I don't know. 
like instead of having one machine that shows two yeah. different things and has a quick change between them and I think it's just not done. Automation in sewing is a huge uh, nut to crack. Right. And a lot of people are working on it and it's very difficult because <laughs> fabric, fabric is moves. floppy. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's a lot of interesting work. I think for all those reasons, it's just like hasn't been done. And then the last piece, which we've experienced with our milling machines, they were built for one thing and we are using them for something else, right? Like uh. they were built, like our machines were built for like automotive or like a specific, specific task. Yeah. Um, and then the second you're outside of that, you start bumping into the ways that they optimized for the other thing and mm -hmm. not for what you're doing, yeah. I think essentially. So. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Do you think we're getting a little off topic, but do you think if slash when the sewing industry starts to bump up against labor costs to a higher degree, these types of advancements will hmm. happen? Uh, probably not the one I'm talking about necessarily. Um, there are, so there are some sewing machines that are more like 50,000 or like more than that. And those do have interchangeable tables and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So it has this has been done, just not with your machine, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it's sort of like a cost of the machine versus like mm -hmm. the cost of coming up with this fixturing. Most fixturing is thousands of dollars. I was just like, what if I just 3D printed it? I want so I just did and it worked. So <laughs> uh, so I'll be 3D printing it. Um I think that the bigger uh, advancements in sewing, like there's a lot, pro like possibly, possibly on this stuff, but really what needs to be solved is much bigger. Yeah. My personal feeling, and this is really an off topic here, but uh, is just that like, it seems like there needs to be more collaboration between the pattern makers and the robotic sewing. Mm-hmm people because there's a lot of like bag designs and stuff like that that could be automated if you designed a bag right. specifically for automated sewing you could do that like adding holding features and all that kind of stuff and yeah and like the way you get a three-dimensional sewn object from two-dimensional fabric mm -hmm. can either be like two curves that come together or it can be a series of straight lines like there's just yeah stuff that's going to make it easier or harder and i haven't seen that collaboration happen mm -hmm. where like there's a vertically integrated it's not true you know the uh, you know those klein bags uh there's like a zippered pouch uh, for an electronic shop like electrical oh, yeah. shops yeah yeah zipper canvas says klein on it i know the company klein i don't know if i know the bag off the top anyway of those bags i talked to the guy who made the product line that makes those bags uh -huh. and it makes them in like i forget how many seconds and it's all like no no one touches it right you load the fabric in you load the zippers in and it makes bags wow um you're talking about the little teeny zippered ones that are like a little tiny tote for like your screwdrivers and stuff yeah exactly yes um, so you can see how that would be a lot easier to fixture because it's not actually three-dimensional uh -huh. until you stick screwdrivers in it. Um, <laughs> Very curious. Anyway. Yeah, that's a whole world I've... Yeah. I mean, I've sewn some stuff in my day, right? but not thought about it in terms of a production process. And yeah. it's very intriguing. And it's crazy how much, like, I think just probably because it's in other countries much more so than manuf like but there's no real sewing here except dod right yeah i think we just like but there's sewn stuff everywhere and we yeah. engage with it every day right totally take for granted that the stuff's just made somehow somewhere yeah and there's been advancements in in pouching which is similar like like you'll see like i just bought sour cream in a pouch instead yeah. of a right yeah and like those if you look at how those pouches are constructed mm -hmm. that is all highly automated where you f load film in one end yeah um uh and there's been advancements in like web it's called web processing uh product lines and the cool innovation there and then we should probably get back. <laughs> but the cool innovation and this was sort of that out of the box thinking kind of um was basically looking at the web as so if you think about feeding a piece of paper through a printer which is a web feeding through a machine oh oh 
a web being like a, a two-dimensional like a two-dimensional piece like, that only likes to bend in one direction at once okay um yeah. sheet metal uh non-stretched textiles plastic film paper uh-huh so like when they print the new york times and it's going at like 50 miles an hour through the printing press yeah you can imagine how easy it would be to get a wrinkle <laughs> and then just a huge jam. Right. And so the cool innovation was they thought about that as a mechanical piece of the structure and then designed out over constraining that web. And so like all they the purposely over constrained, the they web? purposely eliminated over constraint of the web. Gotcha. But that was like, before that it was like these artisans would build these presses and they had yeah. to be so precise to yeah. not wrinkle paper as uh-huh. it fed through. But someone was like, that is a mechanical object. Right. Like if you pretend it's not moving for a second. Right. You can just go like, oh, it can't be over constrained. <laughs> and interesting. Um, it's like anyway. a stressed member almost. Yeah. Hopefully not too stressed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only in tencel. Yeah. Um, Wild. That's cool. Things you learn every day. The more you know, the less you know. Um, <laughs> That's how I feel building my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've talked about the four stages of, of knowing or something. Uh, what are they again? Unconsciously yeah. incompetent, <laughs> to consciously incompetent, to unconsciously competent, to consciously competent. Yeah. That first transition is always painful. It's, it's <laughs> You're just rough. like, oh my God, there's so much to know. I had no idea. Um, yeah, a few improvements in our shop. Um, I added a fume hood to our gas out oven. So mm-hmm. we take parts and throw them in an oven at 300 degrees for an hour before coating and that's to make anything that may be tempted to become a vapor um become a vapor um (laughs) before you put paint otherwise you end up with bubbles under your paint basically here's your chance kids knock yourself out (laughs) exactly (laughs) and the cure temp of the paint is 250 and so Ah. you go a little beyond that and then you're safe um so you have to go for a full hour I don't know. This feels like adverse incentives where the incentive of the paint manufacturer is to give you a recipe that reliable. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, are you guys doubling this? Are you one and a halfing it? Yeah. Are you, could I go to 350 for 10 minutes? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it really, I'm no expert. Same. Uh, but it really seems like volatile compounds. Yeah. Like, they have the word volatile in them. That means they tend to do it quickly. Mm. And if you're not actually trying to burn the stuff and react it, right, it, it would oh, sort of seem point. like it would happen very quickly. Unless yeah. there's a lot of it. So back to the definitions from last episode. Yeah. Yeah. What are the compounds that we're trying to get off? Which might be part of their like, we need to give an hour for anything conceivable right like if there's motor oil yeah that's very different than like coolant yeah or i don't know what finger oils are like in terms of their volatility yeah it just seems mm. like maybe if I mean, it's probably not a constraint in your pro- but painting seems to be a constraint in your process it's all time that stacks up end to end yeah so. so it seems like if you could if you could do some small batch testing and cut that down to a reliable 10 minutes or even five minutes that could be a huge win yeah um so so that's a yeah possible improvement there dig into that yeah or i don't know maybe increase the heat and right i wonder if like steam cleaning would be quicker Hmm. and then it would flash dry because it would be hot steam cleaning is very cool yeah i've used some of that working in a winery huh um it's like very effective, obviously very clean, not no harsh chemicals, right? All, all that stuff. It's and also you, in jewelry sometimes um, we would use ultrasonic cleaners to clean off the the rouge, um, and sometimes in like very tight corners it wouldn't come out, and so hmm. we would use steam to to clean that, and it was pretty effective. Very cool. It just melts the stuff away. Um, so I added a fume hood over that oven because yeah. I was just smelling it sometimes and I was like, I don't want to breathe that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so that was very nice. It always feels good to, I feel like as a small shop owner, it's easy to sacrifice your health yeah. and it always feels good to the be like, no, I'm built on sacrificing your health this. probably. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Um, so that was great. Um, 
got uh <laughs> this one's funny um so we have these this spring inserter mechanism it's 3d printed and then has a whole bunch of springs that are lined up in this sort of rack like yeah. a magazine yeah and i had prototyped it not sure if it would work so i just threw something together and it worked and that's what we've been using for the past year and a half <laughs> and sam the other day was like could i could we like design a longer magazine so we could just have more springs in there so i didn't have to keep stopping to refill that yeah. refill it which is batch work and it is sort of, a, yeah. it is bad but it's also a good next step like is, overall is batching bad if you're just like feeding this is a question mm. your your fundamental process is still the single piece yes. slow <laughs> no, always, yes. <laughs> like your assembly process is still single piece flow yeah so what is the theoretical disadvantage of batching the magazine aside so, from potential inventory but you already hold the inventory so you're just yeah. talking about having a person go get it less often if there yeah. was defects i guess but you've already paid for this stuff so what's the what's the disadvantage there so the way i look at it is if you push it to it's like it's always interesting to see how systems act at their limits yeah and so if i said okay i'm gonna make a magazine that holds 10 million springs sure okay let's not blow it all the way out of the water whatever i order three to five thousand at a time yeah let's say it holds three thousand springs yeah that would take quite a few hours to load and we wouldn't get to cap we wouldn't essentially capitalize on that invested uh labor mm -hmm. for potentially a couple months mm -hmm. and so if you like looked at it looking at it that way it makes no sense to invest the labor yep ahead of when that labor turns into shipped product yeah so i think that is the waste and so the second mm -hmm. you're moving to a bigger batch you are essentially admitting defeat on eliminating the waste of of orienting the springs and look like it is annoying to do yeah and so instead of buying down that instead of solving that problem of they're annoying to orient mm-hmm you're instead sort of just hiding it and sweeping it under the rug and making it hard to observe. Like yeah. we've talked about this part of the point of single piece flow is to make the inefficiencies more apparent, yeah. which is why everyone says, surely that's not more efficient is because if you tried to do it, it is way less efficient, <laughs> right? <laughs> because you are suddenly doing every activity one time per piece instead of one time per hundred piece or one time yeah. per 10 piece. And so, like, I've even had the thought of, like, what if just for the sake of it, you did an activity where every movement to do, instead of doing it once per part, you did it five times per part. Like, I feel like it would suddenly elevate the annoying, pointless parts, uh -huh. like picking up pliers, right? You're like, oh, my God, and reach for it again, and again, <laughs> and again, and again. And now I get to do the thing. It's like, let's hang these from a string right above where they're needed. Yeah. Right, like all these things, it started to highlight the inefficiency to make it yeah. more apparent because what everyone what everyone has historically done up to the point of, well, I'm sure there's exceptions, but like Toyota made this uh, realization that people are basically amortizing their waste instead of solving their waste. Mm -hmm. And that's moving, that like the reason everyone was moving toward bigger batches was to amortize it over more pieces. Yeah, And instead they said, well, let's just eliminate it. So in interesting. I didn't realize there was like an annoying aspect of loading it. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess there's the potential to find defects, although who knows? We found defects. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And actually, this is an interesting example of Pokey Oak. Unintentionally, I made the opening of this spring magazine kind of constricting. Uh huh. It turns out that it catches defects. So you can't load them, oh. <laughs> which is that's cool nice and now something yeah i think about um interesting and one other thing i guess this would be another place you could like look at applying the synchronization of production mm -hmm. like if you do it in a batch size that matches your daily production yeah then it's like you are guaranteeing that the labor put in ships. that day ships that day right versus you know it does seem like there is kind of a happy medium in there somewhere where it's like, if you're doing this, if you're reloading it six times a day yeah, for something like this, like 
if you're going to actually solve the problems inherent, then maybe leave it. But if it's like those problems are not what something we're going to solve right now, then maybe, yeah, you do extend it and match it to your production for the day. So you do it once. That's basically what we did. Yeah. It's yeah. like, we will solve them. It's not going to be now. Mm-hmm. Let's put a bandaid on this where it's just less annoying until we move toward that. Yeah. So the next, uh, I spent a bunch of time on Friday designing a new assembly fixture and the change was keeping the spring feeding mechanism static in the current version it moves and instead another part of the assembly fixture moves hmm. and that allows us to uh, feed it with a vibratory bowl because oh. the vibratory bowl can be static so oh, right that's the the yeah. impending solution <laughs> yes is the so again bowl. not going to be anytime soon because it's such a small we barely spend time orienting and loading springs yeah but it is a thing we spend time on. And really the question is if someone placed an order for whatever, a thousand buckles a month of all the same color, Mm -hmm. what would that look like? Yeah. And (laughs) suddenly loading 10,000 springs into, (laughs) (laughs) would be pretty annoying and time consuming. So yeah. Um, This kind of like points to, which we didn't really discuss last episode, but, kind of like the distinction between theory of constraints and lean mm. or TPS. And you and I discussed this briefly during the week. Yeah. Kind of like, what is the difference between these two things? And this sort of points to maybe what, what theory of constraints is trying to solve that TPS doesn't. And that is highlighting where you need to focus your improvements. And totally this might be one of those things where like, yes, by strict theory, you should maintain single piece flow and solve every problem inherent in your spring loading process. Right. But looking at the business at a whole with a throughput goal, like this might not actually become a constraint until a size at which you may never achieve. Yeah. So it's probably not worth spending time on potentially. Yeah, I think part of, so the, you know, the idea of prototyping toward learning rather than prototyping as like a rev system or Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, One question that's been on my mind lately is what is the floor for the cost of our production of these parts? How low can we go? Uh Uh-huh. Um. On your side, on, on the our internal cost on our side. Internal cost side, yeah. And and there's a few question marks to me. There's ones I know, right? I can get a quote for instead of ordering five hundred pounds of aluminum at a time, I can get a quote for ordering ten thousand pounds or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's this stuff that's easy to figure out, and then there's stuff that sort of the the uh, there's a few cruxes that I that I see. And so it's not necessarily the bottleneck but i would hate to send someone a quote for a very very low price if they promised to buy a hundred thousand pieces that then i couldn't achieve yeah conversely i would hate to send them a quote that they hated when i could have gone lower but didn't realize it so there's sort of some learning that i want to do now even though it's not a true bottleneck um similarly the sewing fixturing yeah. is for this one job they didn't order that many pieces it did not justify me spending you know six hours in CAD mm-hmm. um, but one of the reasons we decided to do it is internally sewing is a constraint on scaling because it's a really skill heavy process and yeah. so someone needs to practice for many hours to get to a level that we are okay shipping mm-hmm if we had fixtures that were extremely low skill to load, that would suddenly alleviate that constraint Yeah. where I know now I can just 3d print extras. I can hire a bunch of flex workers or whatever, and they're going to successfully load these. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. I have another tangent Hit me. <laughs> um, in that gold rat presentation, whatever you want to call it beyond the goal, beyond the goal there was the discussion of engineering a sale and part of that was not lowering prices and not, and not using that as a lever. Yeah. And I'm interesting. 
it, it would seem like maybe I just didn't hear all of it yet, but I'm interested to explore this idea more because I think it comes back to the kind of what we were talking about earlier and not letting cost be your driving factor all the time. Um, and that how maybe driving down costs as the primary goal doesn't actually develop good business relationships. Yeah. Um, and clearly like lowering costs is important, but also how do we, what am I trying to say here? How do we kind of bring the other level levers into the picture in a way that cost can be less of a lever except as something that benefits everyone maybe in the supply chain and everyone in the whole system through to the consumer. Yeah. But stop focusing on it as like our primary lever to pull with sales or, or a significant yeah. lever to pull with sales. This is a, a question, a tangent, yeah. an exploration that I don't have an answer for, but totally his insistence on that in that, um, in that speech was very interesting to me. Totally. That like, well, as he said it, you never lower your costs because then you're just asking for a price war because somebody else can also lower their costs if they do the same things that you're doing. Right. So what is it that you're bringing to this interaction that is unique? How do you, what do you, what else are you providing to your customer that is unique aside from low cost? And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting as, as we look at these things and focus on lowering cost, how do we not shoot ourselves in the foot essentially? Yeah. So I think, I mean, a few comments. One, if you look at Prusa right now, mm -hmm. they, uh, I don't know what the future holds, but like bamboo came out 3d printer. They're both 3d printers. Mm -hmm. Bamboo came out at the same price point offering a lot more. Isn't it even lower? Whatever. I mean, one it of them it's is very comparable. One's like they're right around a thousand bucks, a right. little over, right? Yeah. In the range. Yeah. And so I think, I think that is true, but I think it's worth recognizing. And, and you saw the same thing with like U.S. automakers, right? Yeah. They made cars. They're like, this is what a car costs. And then some, someone else spent a bunch of time, two years actually, <laughs> uh, more than two years, uh, figuring out how to make it much cheaper and much better. And then they came out and kind of you're referring through. to japanese automakers yeah. yeah and then same with like kia right kia was not great and then they figured out to make a very cheap car yeah. and brought their quality up and so i think i think it is true but i think there is a an abdication of responsibility sometimes with with uh manufacturers that start priding themselves on a different aspect mm-hmm so I think there's both. I think it is really, both and. yeah, it's like, it is really important that your value add is not just like <laughs> we offer the lowest price unless that is your value add. Right. Sure. I think it's really important. Like for me, one thing we were just talking about the other day is like, we make really fancy buckles. They are expensive. The only complaint we're going to hear in every <laughs> single deal we try to make is their cost, right? The quality's great. <laughs> the aesthetics are like, it's all great. Sure. Except the cost. And so we should not respond to that by saying, okay, we'll drop the cost. That is not the response. The response is, okay, well, it's not a good fit for you. Like there's plenty of cheaper options. You know that go buy them. Mm -hmm. Right. And the reason to not drop our cost is because we need to find people where the value add of nicer hardware is a real value add to the end consumer. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, if we don't put ourselves in a position to learn that lesson, we're going to chase the bottom and then not have money. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a both situation. It's like, there's people that come to us and they're like, we love your product. You know, what do you think? And I'm like, just thinking about it the things we offer are not things you need. So like, just go buy the other stuff. Mm -hmm. But then there's people who like, I made this out of frustration from personal use that no one else was solving. Right. And so like, we need to find more people who are in that scenario. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's both. Mm -hmm. I think, but I think it's really important to not, cause look, I'm also going to get knocked off. Right. Yeah. At some point, someone's going to knock this off. Mm -hmm. If they can't do it cheaper than I can do it. <laughs> They're going to have a trouble knocking me off. Right. 
And I don't think that's unrealistic for me to do it as cheap as anyone. Yeah. Yeah, Both totally. if I chase efficiency and if I know that the equipment I'm using is the best equipment out there from yeah. a value perspective. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think both. But, yeah, I, I think it's a very good point, <laughs> which is, yeah. Was there a point? <laughs> I'm just teasing this. Yeah, out. spend time thinking about what is the value you can bring to the table that yeah. is not just we'll do it cheaper. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Um, other little improvements. Um, we added a part counter at the sewing machine. Yeah, just like a click. Yeah. I, I took some E-tape and taped it to a block of aluminum so the <laughs> orientation stays convenient. And uh-huh. it has really helped us level production in a numerical way. Uh, yeah. And so when you point sew of the day, one we and hit the button, basically. Yep, yep. And yes, we could tie it to the sewing machine. And yeah, yes, yeah. there's a bunch of stuff. But already it's just like really informative yeah. um, and nice to have a real number that we can look at throughout the day. It's one of those things I keep coming across this too, where it's like something is infinitely more than nothing. <laughs> yeah. Even, if, right, it's, even right. if it's not, even if it's so minimal, like. I keep experiencing this where it's like, okay, I have this idea. I'm literally just going to start the placeholder, which seems like nothing, but it is infinitely more than nothing. Right. And it opens the door for everything else to come after. Yeah. And I have been so guilty in the past and still of not doing it because it's not, because it's not even in my head. It's not even close to where it needs to be. Right, and right, right, right. Yeah, just keep coming back to that. So something is infinitely more than nothing. Totally. So just, just do the something. You'll figure out how it needs to be better as you go. I feel like I sort of made a career out of that in a way that I felt bad about for years because <laughs> I would just like try stuff. I remember like growing up, I would just like try really simple versions and like build stuff out of cardboard, build stuff like string and whatever. Just like, does this work? Yeah. And I was always sort of like, man, I wish my stuff like looked nicer. Right. <laughs> and I wish it was like more polished. And then people, I'd see these photos of stuff people built and it's like, man, like that's so, so cool. And mine kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. And then I went to college and I figured when I went to college that everyone would be building stuff at such a high level that I would like, you know, thrown in the deep end basically. Uh-huh. And I ended up doing a bunch of work in the robotics institute with red whitaker who's like a big name roboticist okay and he just loved me because he had all these classes where they'd spend a semester and he'd be like this is what we need the problem we need to solve and people would plan and plan and plan and plan and plan and then start building this final thing and then it would have all these problems that you couldn't foresee yeah but you could have tested tested early with really simple prototypes and then been like had a really much better solution if you and it's like, yeah, it's that hesitance to like make something crappy. And like one of my, uh, this week, uh, one of the things I'm going to give Sam is, uh, to make us some headphone holders hmm. out of cardboard and hot glue. Uh-huh. Cause yeah, right now they just rest on a shelf right. and it's annoying. And you're talking about ear protection. Yeah. 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 Just like little cubbies and it's like, oh, they should be plywood and we could like round the corners and we could build a nice little cabinet or whatever, right? Like you can so quickly like scope Mm -hmm. creep that project. Yeah. And to your point, like something is so much better. Like it's infinitely better than nothing. And then you'll start to be like, oh, this angle's wrong. Oh, this could be smaller. Oh, what if we did it this way? I don't know. Yeah. I've really enjoyed having the 3D printer for that. I also do think I need to like get some of these other like basic supplies, like a hot glue gun, <laughs> which I don't have. Yeah. You know, or yeah. even just like <laughs> a bunch of coat hangers or something totally. that we can just yeah. like have to bend and like make stuff. Like I, I always used to also feel bad because like <laughs> I just put screws everywhere to hang stuff on. Same. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, ah, oh, it's ugly. Like, right. I should get hugs. Yeah, I should. Then, yeah. I'm just like, <laughs> walls are peppered with screws but it's like it takes two seconds and now you have a place to hang your stuff yeah and then you unscrew it and screw it in somewhere else when you realize it should be moved and yeah and then maybe five years later when things are really like in a good system you buy 
an actual hanger <laughs> or a hook and put it up or maybe not. I don't know. But. Yeah. And I think like, I don't know, like you look at lean tours, like shops of uh, like tours of really, really clean shops. And I think I've talked about this with a few folks like Kaizen foam is this foam that you cut out a profile. So a part like so a tool drops right into it. And mm -hmm. I think the, the challenge to me with Kaizen foam is that it makes it really hard to reorganize. It, it makes it like very binary. You're mm -hmm. either cutting a new piece of foam or you're leaving it exactly how it is yeah. now. <laughs> like we start anyway. So like, unless you treat it as like, okay, we'll make a new one next week if we have to. Yeah. I think like this idea of like prototyping and like PDCA, I think it's important to take steps toward things. Mm -hmm. Like even with Kaizen foam, it's like maybe spend a week Maybe organize your drawer how you think it should be laid out in Kaizen foam. Trace it on a piece of paper. Cut it out of cardboard. Try it. Cut it out of foam and commit to redoing it. I don't know, right? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Put a screw in the wall. Hang the thing. Realize it should be hung somewhere else in the shop. Yeah. Move it over there. <laughs> then build it home. Or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Interesting. Incremental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So sort of a tangent, but something I want to talk about with you. Um, we bought the R450 pallet changing mill with the express purpose of automating it. Right. And we have not yet because we ended up with a bunch of work that would run on it very well manually. Mm -hmm. um, automating it's been a little bit of a lift just to get all the, the fixturing built and, and whatnot. However, in the last four, I guess, five months ish, four months since we bought it, um, and all the other realizations about our other machines and kind of where our efficiency might be at, right. of the hurdles we're facing that have come to the surface since then, it does such a good job at manually loading work that I'm wondering if that is sort of a fool's errand. To automate that, to focus on automating that while not automating our other machines and that if we could automate our other machines that would be a much bigger addition to the shop because you know we had talked about the not that i'm basing everything on those numbers but the uptime numbers from a few weeks back of like in the 80 to 90 percent range on the r450 machine Whereas in like the 45 to 50% range on the, the standard verticals, if we could be bringing the standard verticals up to like a 70 to 80% range and there's two of them, that seems like a much higher overall yield in the shop Yeah. than getting the R450 from like 85 to 95. Right. Um, I think, let's see. So thinking about it, I mean, on the fly here, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the reasons you got the R450 for automation, mm -hmm. I think, still exist. They do, yeah. But thinking about it, uh, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. The one piece I could imagine, which thinking back, because we had talked about this before you bought the machine, yeah. sort of like how ideal it would be for automation right? and solve a lot of the problems we've both ha had with automating the yeah. Which basically the machines, the the normal vertical machining center um, with a spindle gripper, you have con chip contamination on the stock. You have That's table a, space. Mostly it was a table space constraint. And then like getting parts out in cycle. Yeah. Those are the main goals in my mind was yeah. being able to get out parts in cycle. Although for us, that's maybe even less critical than it would be for someone Because they're just like going to sit on a rack until they go to anodize kind of probably yeah yeah or be in a batch of five until they go into the tumbler right. um but the the table space thing was a big a big goal yeah but i think i might have solved that for the other machines huh. potentially by lowering our walk away right. lowering our part quantity per cycle but yeah i was gonna say it, since then, I think my focus on longer run times has actually switched uh -huh. where I'm realizing that shorter run times is better during the day and longer run times is only an advantage at night. Uh -huh. 
because of a few things. One is part balancing, which isn't really applicable to you because you're basically running one job, right? Typically, which is something I might be not a discussion for today. Yeah. I've taken it for granted that that's something I'm going to do. I kind of want to explore whether that, and it may, it may totally still make sense, but I kind of want to explore why. Yeah. If you can get your change over time way down, I think it could be huge. Anyway. yeah, Yeah. Another time maybe, but so I would think that during the day it's not advantageous really to go from like 20 minutes to five hours. It feels awesome, Mm -hmm. but it's actually really risky. Mm hmm. Right. It's like, are they running well? Are they loading properly in op two? Are they, there's so many risks that actually checking in more frequently over the long term is probably more efficient. Mm -hmm. And the NRE non-recurring engineering time of getting a reliable three hour run, especially as a job shop probably is not worth it either. Yeah. So like frequent check-ins are good for that reason too. And it's just that having like, yeah, so I would imagine separating out running during the day and running at night would be useful and would probably point to yeah automating the... And as I've said, like running at night for us is really so far out in the future that it's something I want to have like on my mind, but it's not a, an active goal at the moment at all. Um, it, largely, I think from a scheduling standpoint, because we do run variable length jobs, mm-hmm. they vary from day to day. There's like a high likelihood that we'll be running something that's going to just, you know, maybe we'll get an extra hour or maybe, but there's a high likelihood, you know, that we'll do, we'll get halfway through a changeover at the end of a day and not have something fully proof to run overnight. Right. It's just like, we can't really, it's very hard for us to schedule predictable overnight work. Yeah. Um, at least now with, that with said, if someone could hand your pricing could look quite different to achieve an overnight run, right? Yes. You could basically be like, okay, I'll give you a great rate if you guarantee me X amount of work per month. And then you always run one person's stuff at night or something. Sure. Yeah. If I'm high ass- volume, I'm assuming like our, our work mix doesn't change. Right. Right. If we were to like target that and then go for work. Yeah. That could run. That's a different story. At night. Yeah. Yeah. So I could, yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense. Like, I think the marginal gains of going from like 80% up to 85, 90% Mm -hmm. in the R450 versus, yeah, I think you have a lot more to gain on the other machines. The other thing is like your manual loaded, manually loaded work is not going to go away. Not likely. By automating the R450. No. And so, yeah, in terms of like, (laughs) yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. To maybe shift back to the. It's almost the reverse, like focus on all manual loaded work on pallet changing machines and everything we can automate, put on the other machines, even though it seems potentially less efficient. Yeah. I have to say seeing like, see, like seeing you buy have both machines and then hearing your, <clears throat> the numbers. Yeah. Those pallet changing machines make so much sense. Yeah. Thinking about the, like the Toyota, like pre-automation automation, automation yeah. thing. Like they do a pretty amazing job of balancing kind of like cost investment for gains. Yeah. But like your, your added, the added cost of those machines is made up for in uptime gains alone. Yeah. yeah. And they take up the same amount of space on your floor. More or less. More or less. Yeah. And so rent-wise, you're just ahead. Yeah, no, I think they're a fantastic value. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, there's part of me that's like, should I just sell the other (laughs) machines and buy more of these? Because there's a lot. Right. Like, they make so much sense. Yeah. That's not really probably a practical... uh, Maybe, Avenue. although if it would prevent you from moving, like that's uh-huh. money. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> and increase your throughput by fifty percent almost. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting. Yeah. Anyway, spreadsheet, spreadsheets. Um. Yeah, 
I think that's uh, I have one little other thing. We um, we had a weird shaped part. That, okay. That we had to laser engrave a bunch, and uh, we we're kind of like, how are we gonna do this? And I was like, ah, three D printer. So we just like three D yeah. print a cradle. Yeah, printed a cradle for it. Worked, oh, awesome! Worked great. Did it at the end of the day. Came back in the morning and it was ready to roll. Wow! Yeah, that's fantastic. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah, I have a tiny one. Yeah, uh, we or Sam compiled a list of uh, tasks that can be completed in under ten minutes. That mm. are sort of just like you know, like between things, or you have a weird amount of time before you a meeting or a call, and it's like yep. Yeah, so just we're gonna just print it out big on the on the wall, and at any point, or you just need like a mental break mm-hmm. or whatever, you can just like look up there and pick one off. So cool, love it, awesome. Well, all right, thank you all for listening. Absolutely. Uh, that wraps up our practice edition for the week. <laughs> <laughs> a little rambly this week, but yeah. uh, I think interesting. Hopefully, things to explore. Yeah. Interesting to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, you can find me on Instagram at lichen underscore MFG. And you can find me at austere underscore manufacturing. You can find the podcast at incremental CI. Also on Instagram. On Instagram. And, uh, yeah, till next week. Have a good one.